Jonathan, how are you? Good. How are you doing this morning? Doing well. So you spent some time at the Pentagon. Tell us a little bit, for those that aren't familiar with your background, a couple uh, points about what you did okay. as it relates to. Uh, so my role at the Pentagon was to, as the chief Pentagon spokesman was run all the public communications uh, for the Pentagon. As, as you probably assume, there's parts of Pentagon communication that's not public. Uh, and then there's the parts that are talking to the news media, um, briefing from the podium, and uh, coordinating our messaging campaigns across the uh, services and the combatant commands. And so it's spent a lot of time working with uh, domestic international reporters and uh, think tanks and trade associations and groups to talk about what the Pentagon is doing part of part of the job also included we were in charge of the uh, Pentagon film office so approving scripts for movies like Top Gun uh, and things like that were uh, part of the job I didn't get to read them though apparently well I, I was I excited about Top that. Gun coming out yeah. for uh, but you, so you were involved in a lot of the uh, both stuff that wasn't public in terms of how to coordinate that and how to disclose stuff to the public but also stuff that was public and how that positioned um a lot, a lot of stuff's been going on since you left the Pentagon. We've got Russia has now sort of reminded us that we're in this hostile world. What is your take on that? Well, when, we, when I was at the Pentagon, we, we dealt with a, a lot of different things. We had um, escalation with Iran uh, in, the, in 2020 that led to uh, some ballistic missile attacks on our forces. Uh, COVID was a big thing. There was domestic unrest. There's a lot. So we thought we were, we were very busy. And then looking at what's going through the, the current uh, administration with, with the withdrawal in Afghanistan, and then, as you mentioned, with what's going on in Europe is, is one of those things that was kind of unexpected, but is a, is a great challenge. And I think what we're seeing is, is a destabilization of that 75-year uh, post-World War II global economic order that was set up, that, that Marshall Plan economic order that led to such explosion in economic prosperity and uh, lifting people out of poverty around the world. These, these rules that have been in place for 75, 80 years, China in particular has been trying to undo those in an effort to uh, help their ascent as a global leader. And then you see Russia and Europe trying to do physically through, through war uh, the same thing to upend that that order in Europe. Now, it feels like sort of COVID sort of accelerated a lot of things. It broke the dam. Yeah. So whether it's just the way we, you know, technology, the way we live, the fact that we no longer have to go in the office, things that were already sort of undercurrents. But these geopolitical events feel far more, you know, certainly in my lifetime, um, something that's sort of unfamiliar territory. How, how do you think of, What's happening specifically with Russia? What is how, what is your take on that? Yeah. I'd, I'd start with within COVID. I would start with China because I think what happened with COVID was um, there was a level of dishonesty with the Chinese response to COVID that, on a global scale, people saw. And so, for a long time, you had COVID. So you had China was trying to come up as a, a economic competitor, but not a, a geopolitical competitor to the West, um, and to to build relationships with small countries um, through their Belt and uh, Road initiatives and some trade policies. The, the, the impact of COVID and the response to COVID, I think, diminished a lot of trust to China and exposed China for what, what it was trying to do and uh, rolled back some of that. So I think that spooked China a little bit. In, in Europe, I think what you also saw was Russia, um, their response to COVID was, was difficult. And I think in a global perspective, 
country saw a need to be more self-reliant because of COVID. And I mean, one of the reasons we're talking about this here is because of the supply chain issues that came out of COVID of, of your need to have your own PPE, you need to have your access to resources, you need to have a lot of things internally ready, and you can't count on the global uh, networks to support you in a crisis. And uh, because of that, I think that there was some, some rejiggering of priorities in Europe uh, uh, among different countries, including Russia, into what is in their best interest as opposed to part of the global interest. Do you think that if COVID hadn't happened, that we wouldn't be seeing sort of this uh, ascension or uh, of Russia and this sort of draconian, uh, well, the lockdowns wouldn't have happened, arguably, yep. or would have happened for the reasons that the Chinese have said. But do you think that a lot of the sort of the, the world would have continued at the same sort of pace? Or do you think that because of it was already sort of headed that way and, and COVID accelerated it? I, I, don't, I don't want to overstate the role of COVID. I think with China, you would have seen a progression. I mean, China has their their plan to by 2049, the 100th anniversary of the founding of, the, of the, the People's Republic of China, to have a basically be a leading nation. So right now we call them a near peer. They're not necessarily a military or economic peer of the U.S., but they're getting closer. They want to be a leading country by 2049. So I think you would have seen at some point them try to redo the economic rules about trade, um, about the dependence on the dollar, uh, things like that. So I think that would have happened. It, it might have been accelerated because of COVID. Um, I think Russia is a little bit different. Russia, and you can't overstate this, both with China and Russia, with, with Xi Jinping and with Putin, how much of this is personality driven. And in Russia, you have a, an individual who um, has made, um, he's been in power for 20 years and uh, he's gotten an increasingly insular set of advisors uh, and he's trying to find ways to maintain that power base. And so to predict his decision or to, to um, review his decision-making through one event is kind of difficult for why he's making it. I mean, Ukraine, invading Ukraine was a fundamentally um, the, uh, illogical decision by Russia. It doesn't make sense. You, you, surprised, you think people are surprised? I mean, obviously, we've seen a lot of public conversations about how well the Ukrainians have performed mm -hmm. or arguably how poor the Russians have performed. From your time at the Pentagon and sort of understanding what the expectations were, how would you grade that? So I, I just preface it with I haven't seen any Intel products in, you know, since I left the Pentagon last year. Um, we were wrong about how long Afghanistan would hold up after we pulled out. Um, we were wrong about how long uh, Ukraine would hold up after uh, Russia invaded. Um, a lot of it comes down to what individuals, and it comes down to leadership. And so in Afghanistan, you saw the leadership of Afghanistan leave in a pretty short order after we left. Uh, in Ukraine, you saw uh, President Zelensky stay and become a, you know, a, a global figure and show that leadership. And so I think those are, those are really tough things to predict and to predict people's willpower. Um, the ability to fight, I think people understood that Russia would have a difficult time because Ukraine does have um, a large military. It's a large country. It's a, um, it's a geographically um, expansive area. There were other challenges. But I do think people were surprised, particularly with how poorly the Russian military has done. I think one of the, the lessons, that logistically, Russia's had a lot of problems that, uh, that have come to light that are going to lead to lessons learned both for the U.S. and for others in the future. Yeah, I think it's sort of a testament to supply chain. Yeah. Just another sort of narrative where the conversation about logistics and supply chain are important to run. And certainly if you're going to win wars, you have to have. It, it's, it's interesting because there's stuff like I'm, I'm, a, I'm actually an Air Force Reserve officer, so I, I, I know 
the Air Force, but not as much the Army, but learning about the logistics of artillery and learning about some of the things about how, how far uh, the logistic trains can go, ground lines communications for, um, for re- rearming. And then watching Russia really struggle. I mean, their equipment is, they have corruption. So you see their equipment is degraded below a place we would find our equipment. um, Because instead of repairing all of my tanks, I'm going to take that money and buy a house. Um, And things like that can happen in Russia. Um, And then just the the quality of of the equipment isn't isn't there. So just the corruption of the way the the generals and the folks that were on the take have not invested in their military. Yep, the maintainers, the, the procurement officers, uh, we've seen that their equipment just hasn't been maintained to the same standard. And I think you saw it very early on in the conflict when you had trucks breaking down, um, you had uh, weapons that didn't work, the, the amount of, of weapons. And then also what you saw is Russia had a fundamental uh, misanticipation of how Ukraine was going to act. So Russia's plan was to do a very quick three, four, five-day drive to Kiev, take the capital, uh, have install a puppet government. And when that didn't happen, they had the forces in place to do that quick move. And when that didn't happen, they got bogged down and they didn't have the infrastructure and the supply chains in place to rearm, to, to feed the troops, um, to bring in fresh battalions. And so what you've seen in the last couple of weeks is Russia's pulled forces back out of Kiev, uh, out of that area in the, the northern part of the country, uh, they've pulled forces back into Russia, rearmed, reconfigured the battalions, and they're sending troops back in. But at the same time, their their ability to do offensive operations are, are somewhat limited right now. They've just got to. Uh, there's a, a, a Sun Tzu saying is that you got to give your opponent a golden bridge to retreat. Um, Putin's got to find a way out of this because right now they're going to be in a stalemate. Ukraine's not giving in. Russia is unlikely to be able to impose its will on Ukraine in any large scale way. Uh, so they've got to find a way out of it. And the theme of supply chains, is there a risk? I mean, Russia's been cut off from most of the Western part of the, the world. China seems to be sort of, we'll call it tolerant or supportive, if you sort of. Um, do you think that they'll be able to replenish their supply chains of the military? Or are they, are they just, is the no. Russian military done? No, they're, they're going to have a hard time. It's going to take a long time because they need, for pre- precision-guided weapons particularly, uh, they need to have access to semiconductors, have ha- access to... Um, high technological uh, equipment that they don't, their equipment to uh, build the machines, to actually build the weapons. Um, they get a lot of that from the West and they're not going to have access to that for a while. Uh, they're they're going to suffer. I mean, munitions take a while. I mean, even within the U.S., we're giving a lot of munitions to Ukraine right now and it's going to take us a while to replenish it, to build all the anti-tank weapons that we've been giving them. It's going to take us a while, but it's definitely going to take be much, much, much more difficult for Russia to rebuild that. And, and the other thing about Russia is you think about it, it's an economy about a one-sixteenth the side of the U.S. It's the size of Texas economically. And so it has about a $1.6 trillion economy and it has the second largest military in the world. So they were already pushing uh, as far as they could probably go economically. And one of the reasons why the Soviet Union collapsed was we forced their spending so high that their economy couldn't support it any longer. And so there's only so much Russia can do. And that's why Russia... Uh, has been focused on um, uh, asymmetric warfare. So hypersonics is one of the big things they've been working on. They have a high uh, investments in their nuclear arsenal because they know a conventional war against the West would be devastating. And so they try to avoid that. So we've seen what has happened since this war started with you know, commodity prices and mm-hmm. 
almost every global commodity, specifically the most impactful one is energy prices, have just accelerated diesel, jet fuel, any of the distillates. What do you think that that means for sort of Western supply chains? Is this something that we're going to be contending with for years? Is it something that if Russia were to declare victory, sort of like what we did in Vietnam and, you know, says that they won, but they didn't, do you think that sort of resolves itself? Well, I think if you look at the, uh, you know, if you made a list of all the countries that produce a lot of oil and you took the U.S., Canada, and Norway off that list, uh, most of those countries have some problems. Um, they're, they're not, most of them are not model democracies. They're not modern Western liberal institutions. And so uh, with regard to oil, people tend to have a very short memory and, uh, and tend to uh, are willing to work with individuals because it's such a valuable commodity. Uh, so I think to the point, I think there's a larger question about uh, the push for national security, energy independence is kind of a national security priority. We're blessed by the fact that the U.S. has a lot of oil and, and Canada does as well. So we're relatively immune to having a um, not having any, I mean, we may have pockets of areas due to, to political issues where, where there's some supply chain issues, but for the most part, we have access to it. Um, I think you're going to see an increased development in um, you know, renewable energy sources as a way to gain independence. Because um, when you think about the oil, Japan, and, and there's a book called um, War Plan Orange, and it's a book about we predicted what was going to happen in the Pacific against Japan for almost 50 years. We were wargaming what Japan was going to do because we knew eventually they were going to need the resources. And so what you want to do is try to get a world away that, that you don't see China have to do the same thing, where they're constrained and they need to go places to get resources. That's why they're building islands in the Southeast Asia and they're trying to take over some of the, the oil fields in those areas. So oil becomes a, a very important commodity, but you hope, you hope that Russia takes a step back uh, over time, it rebuilds its trust and relationship with the West. Uh, Europe is very dependent on Russian oil because of the pipeline system uh, and works its way back in. But right now, Europe seems pretty committed to cutting Russia off and finding alternatives. So how do you balance? I mean, this is particularly a problem in Europe. Is this, and certainly in the United States, has become a problem. How do you balance this so ESG development and sort of green energy sustainability, the big conversation that happens in supply chains, with the fact that we need hydrocarbons? Well, in the U.S., like I said, we, we have, I think we do about 12, 11, 11 million barrels a day or, or 12 million, somewhere in that range. We, we have a, a pretty significant supply. So we have a different timeline, I think, than others do. Um, obviously, we see impacts on price based on the global market, but there has to be, there has to be a balance. And... Um, <clears throat> Uh, you know, there's the stories about how in uh, New York in the turn of the, not this past century, the century before, how they were reaching an environmental calamity because horse manure was filling up the streets and all, and they were look, trying to find a way to deal with this horse manure problem. And then all of a sudden the car came along and they saw that as an environmental godsend because now you had cars and you didn't have horses on the street and you didn't have to deal with this environmental issue. So uh, people expect that, that as soon as there's enough of an investment, in those programs that you will start to see new things come forward. I mean, we're starting to see electric cars become mainstream. I know there's, there's, there's a number of vendors here with electric trucking um, that that's becoming more mainstream. It seems like economically the uh, adva advance, uh, advances are there and uh, advantages of doing so are there. Um, and government has been willing to put money in to those programs as have 
uh, VC and other investors. So I think people see it. Uh, I think people acknowledge that there's not just a, a good business, but there's an environmental need to it. There's a national security need. So there's a number of things that are, I think have tailwinds for those and for those uh, industries. Do you buy the argument that this war could escalate where now America is supplying the Ukrainians <clears throat> or is it, is it so hard to predict? It, Russia couldn't escalate any way except through uh, the use of nuclear weapons. Um, their ability to wage um, land war against NATO is, is pretty, pretty diminished right now. They, they're struggling to uh, subdue an adversary that's a tenth their size militarily. Uh, they would, the West, NATO would, would have uh, a significant advantage, particularly uh, air power uh, advantage over, over Russia. Um, but Russia's, their, their battle order is a little bit different than ours. They consider the use of battlefield tactical nukes as an acceptable use of nuclear weapons, where we do not. We see that as a straight line escalation to global nuclear war. Um, but I, I, don't, I don't know what their out would be. I don't know what their, their objective would be with a, with a wider war. They're not going to win it. They know that. Um, and it's not going to, um, it, maybe it's to save face with Putin, but he, we've got to help him find another way to do that. We've got to help him find another way to de-escalate and to get out of, out of Ukraine. Yeah, it's a crazy time. Shifting to China, you know, obviously it's the world's manufacturing center. We've seen China implement these draconian lockdowns. You talked about the fraudulent sort of narrative in China that they had something like zero deaths for two years of COVID, uh, but all of a sudden are starting, the reports are quite different. What is your take on what's happening there? So you have, when you think about China, China's run by a single, single party autocracy. So that when you talk about China and the Chinese government, it's not the Chinese government, it's the, it's the Communist Party of China. And the number one goal of the Communist Party in China is its self-preservation to exist. And so all things equal, that is what they're looking to do. So when they, they implement programs that are economic to uh, empower and better the lives of Chinese, it's done because it's an economic or it's, it's a political good for them. So I think what you're seeing now is um, autocracies have a problem with uh, um, being autocratic and telling people what to do. And so when there's a problem, uh, they, they, they clamp down, they, they search for answers, um, and they try to implement draconian measures in an effort to get the public to go along. I don't think, I think what they're seeing is that their measures haven't been effective. Their vaccines weren't nearly effective. Uh, they clearly didn't have zero deaths. They clearly were not having a, a, as good a response to COVID as they let people on. Um, and now they're trying desperately to keep things tight and to keep things under wraps. Um, one of the things about China is you look back historically in the, in the not too far um, uh, past the Great Leap Forward, when they went through a massive famine and millions and tens of millions of people died because of lack of access to food. And that's something that is still very, um, very cognizant in the minds of Chinese uh, individuals and, uh, and, and older Chinese. And so there's, there's a very deep concern about that. And so the Chinese Communist Party has to deal with how are we going to feed people? How are we going to keep people, um, um, uh, take care of them during this? And so they've, they've got a lot of concerns. Do you think that this lockdown is going to go on for months? It certainly has gone on longer than what yeah. most people in the West thought. But 
Do you think it's something we're going to have to contend with? Well, I think the, the thing about China is just how vast it's how vast it is. My my wife and I, when we did our, our honeymoon, we we backpacked through uh, Asia for a couple months, and we uh, we ended up in Chinese cities that had 15, 20 million people I'd never even heard of, and so there's a lockdown in Shanghai, there's a lockdown in Beijing. These things can bounce around to different Chinese cities uh, for an extended period of time. And you're still talking about 10 million and 20 million and 30 million people who are locked down, even as it, it moves through different cities and, and the, the lockdowns release in certain areas. I don't know how long it's going to go on for. Um, I don't think anybody has a lot of visibility into it. China does not have a great record in sharing COVID information with the West. Uh, so I don't think people have a lot of visibility into what's, what the long-term impact is going to be. You know, it's interesting. So much of the U.S. supply chain is dependent in some way, either through small components or, or sort of indirectly dependent upon uh, China. What, what is your take in terms of what a supply chain executive should be doing here? Well, if you, if you look at COVID, and I think COVID opened a lot of people's eyes to the need for onshoring. Uh, or at least having resources available nearby and in countries you can trust. I think of um, uh, 5G was one of the big fights we had when I was at the Pentagon, was um, trying to get 5G components to not be Chinese components. And there were only a couple companies, non-Chinese companies, that made those, those components. Same thing with UAVs. Um, uh, DJT was the big producer of UAVs um, uh, and trying to get other companies to compete with that. So identifying friendly nations that have resources, have, um, have those supply chains existing for certain products, working with them, uh, and trying to diminish our reliance on China. The, the interesting thing about China, though, is China's not an, I wouldn't say China's an adversary. They're a competitor and to some extent um, right now, an economic competitor. And they, they need the relationship with the U.S., and the Western countries as much as, uh, as we rely on them. Because without export markets for their goods, they don't have jobs. If they don't have jobs, they're people who've been lifted, the hundreds of millions of people that have been lifted out of poverty for the last 10, 20, 30 years in China will return to poverty. That's bad for the Chinese Communist Party. So they, they want to maintain those relationships. Uh, and that's why I think you've seen with China, with Russia, um, they haven't embraced what Russia is doing in Ukraine. You know, they, they may be something that you know, on, on some level they, they support the idea of standing up to your neighbors, but they haven't embraced it because they understand that they need us. What is more important for what China is doing uh, right now is they're trying to detach a little bit from our economic system in terms of the financial system um, to give them a little more independence if they decide to take some action in the future. Shipping can make or break a sale, so optimize how you ship your orders with ShipStation. They make it easy to automate and manage orders no matter how big your business grows. And they might even be able to help reduce shipping and warehouse costs. So optimize and keep up your momentum for growth with ShipStation. Sign up for your free 60-day trial now at ShipStation.com and use the code P-O-D. That's ShipStation.com with the code P-O-D. So one of the arguments has been the reason the world's been so stable for the past you know, yep. 75 years, certainly... Um, is the fact that the U.S. Navy has protected all these trade lanes of oil sort of leaving the Middle East. As we have become more self-dependent, the United States has become far more insular-focused and less focused on sort of global, the global police, if yeah. you will. 
Do you think we should still play the role of protecting sea lanes of oil that maybe we don't benefit from? Well, I, I think there's been a perception that we may have looked more inward, but I, I know a lot of that in the last administration, there was a focus on Europe doing more for Europe, and, um, and President Trump had views on what Europe should be doing. It, to be fair, he was continuing on a policy that was adopted at the Wales Conference in 2014 under Obama that NATO countries needed to do more to defend themselves. And they've actually stepped up and have done that now. Russia actually triggered a lot of that, which is one of the benefits of, benefits of the Russia action in Ukraine is that a lot of these countries have solidified their support for NATO. Similarly, in the, in the Pacific, you have uh, the APEC countries minus China, and you have a number of, uh, we have the Quad countries, which is the US, India, Japan, uh, and Australia, where these alliances have grown, where we realize we can't do it all on our own. Uh, the world's too big. China's military has gotten far bigger. Um, our area of power projection has has diminished in since the 70s and 80s. Um, you know, I, I, I think of back to visits to the head of Indo-PACOM in Hawaii, the commander for all U.S. forces in the Pacific and in Asia. He has a map on his wall, and he can show you where we used to have bases. We used to have bases in a lot of places. I mean, the, the Philippines and in Thailand and in other places that allowed us to project power more. We don't have those anymore. You know, we've got... We've got Guam, uh, Japan, Korea, Hawaii, some forces that we can, we can leave in um, Australia as well. But we have a, a more difficult time in projecting power. So we have to rely on allies and partners. And that's the good thing is we have allies and partners. China and Russia do not have allies. They do not have other countries that will fight with them. So we rely on, on uh, like I mentioned, the Quad countries. But also what you see is uh, Vietnam, Indonesia, uh, Thailand. Uh, there's other countries within Asia um, that are really stepping up their development of their own navies to protect those sea lanes from uh, having one power be able to shut them down. But yes, our, but at the same time, I mentioned asymmetric warfare. We just spent $13 billion on a U.S. carrier. Uh, China and Russia are both developing hypersonic weapons that could potentially make that $13 billion carrier um, a, a very healthy target. So we've got to kind of look a little differently at how we do that because it's, it's unsustainable, the, the, the spending. So a lot more focus. You'll see focus going forward on uh, submarines um, because they're survivable uh, and can maintain and open the sea lanes, um, hypersonic weapons, long-range fires, other things like that. The, the mention Vietnam, which Malaysia, Thailand, building up their military forces, <clears throat> is that to protect themselves from China or is it to protect themselves from the United States? It's... I've been in meetings in my previous role where the 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 you know the emperor has no clothes anymore with China. They realize what China's goals are, and that particularly with respect to not just oil and gas in those areas, but fisheries, um, and and then you have other countries that have issues with China and water rights. Uh, they understand that that that's the threat to them. Um, we visited uh, Vietnam a couple years ago. Um, the U.S. has a higher approval rating in Vietnam than most other countries in the world. So they're not, they're not our adversaries. Philippines, it's back up. There's, there's a, those countries understand that the U.S. helped create that global order um, that allowed these countries to prosper with free trade and that we want to maintain that. China does not. China wants a different order where China has uh, more control over winners and losers. And they want to get rid of uh, the, the, you know, the law of the sea so they can claim more territory because they need to get those resources. And they, so, know, they understand that's all to their detriment. So the conversation about China would not 
be complete if we didn't talk about Taiwan for a second. What's your view of sort of China's desire to reunite or in their mind properly claim Taiwan? China's view is Taiwan is part of, 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 um, of the sovereign country of, of China and that they have the right to maintain it. Our view in the U.S. has always been why we, um, why we um, I don't want to say acknowledge it, but we're aware of that, that, that view. We look for China and Taiwan to come to a peaceful resolution of, that, of their differences. Uh, and that we have an agreement. We used to have a mutual defense treaty with Taiwan. It's, it's no longer enforced, but we do have um, contributions, weapons. We do help support them uh, and help them maintain that. But from the Communist Party view, if, if Taiwan was to ever become an independent country in the views of China and be accepted by the international community as an independent country, that would be a completely unacceptable outcome for the Communist Party would be seen as a, a failure by them. The Communist Party, one of their things is that they're reuniting China, they're restoring China to a global country uh, and, and a, a worldwide leader. So that's why the bringing Hong Kong back in, the Uyghur population, uh, Tibet, all of these things where they've got to bring people together. If they have someone that's not a, a part of the territory that's not there, that would be a failure. The problem with Taiwan is if China wanted to militarily take Taiwan, a lot of people try to compare it to Ukraine and Russia. It's completely different. I mean, logistically, it's just a very, very different fight. Um, you know, the Ty- Taiwanese have been preparing for something like that for a long time, but it, it's a very small country. But at the same time, they got to look at their their anti-ship forces, their anti-aircraft forces. Um, they have to fight a very different fight than the Ukraine would have to fight. Is it, is it fair to say that the U.S. would declare war if China type? I, I think the... The U.S. policy is that we would support Taiwan uh, in a fight. Um, I think that there are probably some public constraints on how much the U.S. public would support such such a war. I, I always said when I was at the Pentagon that I don't know how much you're going to get the American people to support a war over an island that we won't even acknowledge isn't part of China, plus the ability to get resources to it, the ability to get, I mean, the, the, I mentioned the book War Plan Orange. One of the big things about it was how quickly could we get forces from the West Coast of the U.S. to the Philippines if the Japanese invaded the Philippines. And it was not an easy, it was like a 20, 30-day task. So how quickly can we rearm and protect Taiwan if there's a war? How much can we actually have an impact on something? And so we're taking steps in advance to make sure that they're well-resourced, they have the weapons, they have the, the, what they need. Uh, and to make it clear to, to China, if they, if they do act, that that's a, that's a red line for us. And I think what you see, unfortunately, is what we did to Russia, economically, financially, sanction-wise with the West, that could potentially happen to China with regard to Taiwan if they cross that line. I think that's one of the threats that people like to have out there. The issue is that now that China has seen that playbook, they're taking steps to insulate themselves from the impact of that playbook. So, in, so, de, so detaching some of the financial uh, um, uh, ties to the West so that they can be more independent. So for supply chain professionals that are in the room, <clears throat> if there's a piece of advice that you could give them that they can take from all of this because so much of this is unpredictable, what would that be? I think that that's the thing is that it's unpredictable. The, the world that we've known for the last 75, 80 years is going to be a little bit different. And so um, having a sense of uh, flexibility, having a sense of real time, understanding what's going on around the world uh, is going to be necessary. There's, there's going to be no longer of, well, this is how we did it last year. This is how we did it the year before, um, because 
some of those relationships are going to change. COVID in China in particular, you know, a port may shut down today. So you need better, better information, you need better visibility into what's going on. Um, and then redundancy, you know, start looking at how are you able to find alternative paths to get goods places uh, and find out alternative productions. I think what you'll also see is, is probably some of the customers for supply chain professionals will be looking to find alternative locations for supplies to come from. And so to be able to work with them to identify the best way to, to make those shifts. Does it mean more inventory? The companies need to have more inventory on hand? I, I don't know if it's going to be more inventory or if it's going to be more um, um, flexibility in terms of where your inventory comes from. I, I think you're not going to see a, a vendor have um, this is our only supplier of X. They're going to need to have, find two suppliers of X. And so you're going to have to manage maybe a little more complex supply chain, but it will be a, a redundant, it'll be a, a more um, sustainable supply chain. So you might have a little bit more complexity in how you do it and managing what those are. Well, Jonathan, thank you so much for being here. So, All right, well, thanks. I think we're out of time. Thank, thank you. you. All right.